Desperately searching the contents pages of your Bibles, you'll realize that there is, of course, no such book. Our reading came from the Book of Ruth, named after, arguably, best supporting actress. This is Naomi's story. In chapter one, and the first five verses, the scene is set as we learn of Naomi's plight. A widow's plight. And then in verses 6 to 18, we learn of Naomi's exodus. Her return from exile to the land of promise. This is a little book full of big ideas. And verses 19 to 22 exposes uncomfortably to Naomi's pain. Verse 20 has been translated as call me Mara for the almighty has marred me. So we learn of Naomi's bitterness, Naomi's plight, Naomi's exodus and Naomi's bitterness. And for those who like Rhyming sermons, we have Naomi's plight, Naomi's flight, and Naomi's blight. So let's begin at the beginning of our story in verses 1 to 5. These things happened when the judges judged Israel, verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. A time you would not wish to live through. It was a time of war, brutality, anarchy, debauchery. And as we're told here, a time of famine. In those days in the Wild West of the Middle East, a certain man called Elimelech left Bethlehem. Bethlehem, ironically, means the house of bread. And he journeyed to the washpot of Moab, as it's rather unfavorably described in the book of Psalms. Elimelech took his wife and he took his sons and traveled from the breadbasket to the foot washing bowl. They're refugees, dislocated by crop failure, dwindling food supplies, and possibly 
hunger. Who will blame them for seeking a better life? For choosing hoped-for life over a looming death. But fast forward, 10 years on in verse 4, three funerals and two weddings later. Naomi is destitute, verse 5. She is without a husband. She is without sons. She is without grandsons. She has no one to protect her. No one to provide for her. Understandably, some have referred to Naomi as the female Job of the Old Testament. As Job says, every man is born for trouble as sparks fly upwards. As Naomi says, every woman is born for trouble as the sparks fly upwards. We all have a tale of sorrow to tell. Where is God in all of this? Naomi must ask. Perhaps we ask, where is God in all of this? What is to become of me? Naomi must ask. Perhaps we ask too. But it isn't true, is it, that Naomi has no help, that Naomi has no one to defend her, to provide for her. Scripture declares God is in his holy temple. He is a father to orphans and he defends the widows. As we shall see, there is a hidden hand at work through Naomi's circumstances. And let us not fail to see the hidden hand of God at work in our difficulties and in our sorrows. So on to Naomi's flight having set the scene, as I've called it, Naomi's exodus, her going out from Moab, which is, of course, a coming back. It is a return for Naomi. Let's just think about that word, return. In order to return, you must have turned at some point in the past. You turned and then you returned. You turned again. You turned for a second time. Simple, but just hold on to that thought. In these verses, verses 6 to 18, 
There is so much turning or returning going on. So much so that it's likely to leave the reader spinning. Verse 6, she arose to return. Verse 7, they went on their way to return. Verse 8, Naomi said, go, return. I think that's a turn after a false start return. A return on the return after the, ter the, the uh, turn, if you follow me. Verse 10, no, we will return with you. The turn backs of verses 11 and 12 and 15, the gone back, you've guessed it, are all returns in the original Hebrew text. You do see yet? Verse 16, do not urge me to return. And then there are a few more in verses 21 and 22. Why the repetition? I'm a writer, that's um, my occupation. Um, I write news stories for the Christian Institute for their website. And I spend all week, every week, deliberately trying not to choose the same words throughout my story to repeat so it's not so dull for those who are reading them. They might think I lack imagination in my writing. Well, return here reflects, doesn't it, the tug of war that's going on in the hearts of Naomi and in the hearts of Orpah and of Ruth. But surely there are a few other Hebrew words the writer could have used to add a bit of colour to this chapter. But I do believe there is a Holy Spirit significance in the repetition of return. For return in Scripture is one of the Lord's favourite words. One, in fact, he often placed in the mouths of his prophets. In his appeal to his wayward people. Return to me. Return to the one whom you have turned from. To the paths that you have wandered from. It's often translated as repent. To repent is to return. So the Holy Spirit's intent is clear. This returning of Naomi is a kind of repenting. A journey from the washpot back to the breadbasket. A going to the promised land. Back to the promised land that she left those years ago and are going back to the God of promise. And as we're taught in the New Testament, there is joy in heaven over one sinner who returns to their creator 
to their saviour God. And may I say, there is joy in heaven over every single saved sinner repenting over every single sin. Our repenting, our returning, brings joy to the heart of God. We should love to repent, and we should do it often, but we should do it less. Someone has wisely said, we shall never become sinless in this life, but we shall, by God's grace, sin less. Such is God's work of sanctification in us as we repent and determine by God's grace to walk in his ways, to stay on the path of righteousness. So turning, two more big words in this section. This, you may know, is uh, the guitar riff from James Bond, one of the most famous riffs in the history of cinema, perhaps even in the history of music. It normally appears during the gun barrel scene at the beginning, but it can be used during action scenes and may even be found at the end of the movie in the credits. But it's there. It's there. In this chapter, we find one of the most famous riffs, if you like, of the Old Testament, a word that's woven into its fabric. A word that conveys something of the love story that the Bible tells between God and his people, Israel. And it's at the heart of this love story, too, of God's love for Naomi, of Ruth's love for her mother-in-law, of the love of Boaz for the Moabites gleaning in his fields, of the love of God blessing his people with a good barley harvest and ultimately with a king. We begin with the judges judging in the book of Ruth. We end with the king's kinging, particularly David. A few spoilers there for the weeks to come. This riff, this word is short and sweet and it's found tucked away in verse 6. Rather, that must be 16. Let's make it verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly 
with you. A little word with a big heart. From Naomi's lips, we're reminded that the Lord deals in kindness. May the Lord deal kindly with you. It's a blessing word for Naomi here. He's blessing her daughters-in-law. Now, you all have a lift the flap Bible. And uh, on that flap upon which he's written the word kindly, if you just... Lift that and peek underneath, you can see the Hebrew word from which it comes. And you need a cough to say it properly. The word is chesed. <coughs> chesed. C-H as in loch. E-S-E and a D that sounds a bit like a T-H. Chesed. First, for a dusty book-like definition, it's sometimes rendered steadfast love. It means loyalty, goodness, mercy. Loyalty, goodness, and mercy that flows from a loyal, good, and merciful heart. Something expressed within a committed relationship Chesed is voluntary. There's no obligation attached to it. And chesed is enduring. It's not just for a moment. It's something that lasts. Loyal, committed, enduring, steadfast love in action. Kindness. I'm going to show a video clip in a moment, just to prompt them behind the desk there to get it ready, that embodies to me something of the character of Kesed. It's a local illustration. It's about a relationship between two rugby players, Kevin Sinfield and Rob Burrow. Old friends, played for Leeds Rhinos, and that friendship has endured. And that friendship has been shown, has shown rather, some of the qualities of this loyal, committed, merciful, enduring friendship. This is the a clip from the Rob Burrow Marathon, which took place in Leeds earlier this year. about to be carried over the line by Kevin. Rob has motor neuron disease. Please. 
get something of the flavour of chesed, a friendship, a commitment, a bond of love, an act of mercy, one that's repeated over and over and over again. And so Naomi, in what is a parting scene, calls down the blessing of the Lord, the Lord's chesed, his kindness upon her daughters-in-law, that they might know his steadfast love. In fact, there is no greater blessing that heaven can bring down to earth. No greater prayer for others we could pray that they might know and experience the committed love of God. And it is in our own repenting and our returning that this blessing becomes a reality for us too, part of our relationship with our loving heavenly father. Orpah kisses her mother-in-law goodbye and chooses to go back, to go back to her people, to go back to her land, to go back to her gods. Orpah chooses Moab, but not so Ruth. Verse 14, we're told that she clung, she clung to her mother-in-law. That's another big word, the third in this section of our reading. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife. Same word, same word. How about these words from Proverbs chapter 18? A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who clings closer than a brother. Same word. Perhaps less familiar, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 4. Moses commends those who clung to the Lord in the wilderness wanderings. Husbands cling to wives. Friends cling to friends. Believers cling to the Lord. And Ruth clings to her mother-in-law. This Hebrew word is the modern Hebrew word for glue. To stick to. To be fastened to. To be secured to. That that bond might not be broken. That it might endure. Holding fast and not letting go. And the depth of that bond, that commitment, is spelt out in verses 16 and 17. Words that have been described as a confession of personal conversion. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Your exodus, your returning to the house of bread, 
You're going back to your own people. You're going back to the, the land of promise and the God of promise. Shall be my exodus, my returning, my identifying with the people of God and with the God of his people. And till death us do part. And there too I give thee my troth. Truly remarkable act of commitment and faith. A crossing over, an abandoning of an old life to embrace a new one. Forsaking home, people, culture, language, gods. To embrace an unknown future, but not an unknown God. Trusting in a God who knows the future. Naomi and Ruth, their lives, their futures are now glued together. Despite the loss of a husband and two sons, the hidden hand of God has provided both a comfort in sorrow and a support in poverty for Naomi. A widow's plight, a widow's flight. And finally, let's consider a widow's blight. Pleasant Naomi, for that's what her name means, rebrands upon her return to the house of bread as, as the bitter Mara, her new name, her new identity. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? You can see why she's often called the Old Testament's equivalent to Job. So much for her daughter-in-law's bold statement of faith. She seems to have shrugged that off or made little of it herself. Perhaps she sees Ruth as just another responsibility, another burden, another mouth to feed. She can't provide for herself upon her return. How is she going to manage to provide for another who has committed to her in this way? Which makes Ruth's statement of faith all the more remarkable. Ruth throws her lot in with the famine struck, wandering, three times bereaved Mara. She's trusted in the one who has dealt bitterly with her. Or so Mara declares. Why ever would Ruth trust in the God of Mara? we ask. We haven't time to explore the breadth and the depth of what Naomi says here in her bitterness. Whether her theology is right 
or not. But there are two things I think we must take from this. Mara's faith and Ruth's faith are not based on circumstances, but truth. They are not based on circumstances. They are based on truth. Mara returns on empty. No husband, no sons, no grandchildren. No prospects, no inheritance, no future. She is destitute. And Ruth's situation is exactly the same. Yet for Mara, and now for Ruth, the Lord is almighty. The Lord is almighty. You see, faith is not based on earthly reward or comfort or happiness or health or prosperity or security or, or, or. But faith is simply based, founded on the truth that God has revealed about himself and about us. And faith is not believing in facts or even truth per se but falling at the feet of the one who is the truth. Furthermore, this is a hard lesson for some of us, those of us who live in a world that is busy amusing itself to death, who live in a world of self-rights, of self-rules, of self center stage people. Those who believe that they are essentially good and deserve nothing but good luck in their lives. Read again Mara's statement of faith. This is not a statement of fatalism. Her life, all of her life, every joy and every sorrow, every success and every Failure is seen in the light of the Almighty. She is not subject to chance or to luck or to the whims of the gods of Moab. How awful if that is your hope. But ultimately, her trust is in the invisible hand of the Almighty God. Somebody once asked, what can miserable Christians sing? They're arguing for a reinstatement of the use of the Psalms in public worship. Because there God's people lament their troubles, their sorrows. They pour their hearts out before the Lord, not shying from what they are experiencing, but humbling themselves under his almighty hand, trusting in his chesed, his loyal commitment to them as his people. Lord Almighty, you have dealt bitterly with me. I went away full. You have brought me back empty. You have testified against me and brought calamity upon me. Hear my prayer. In her desperation, she does not cut herself free from her only help. And nor must we. For the steadfast love of the Lord 
never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new. They are renewed in our experience every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. William Cooper, who died in the year 1800, was one of the most acclaimed and celebrated poets of his day. During his life, he suffered from periods of debilitating depression, such that he attempted to end it on at least four separate occasions, even subsequent to his conversion to Christ. He was a close friend of John Newton, and he collaborated with Newton in the publication of a collection of hymns known as Olney, or Oney Hymns, in which you'll find Newton's much-loved Amazing Grace and also our closing hymn this morning. God moves in a mysterious way. It's Cooper's hymn. And it appears in a section entitled Conflict. And it's headed, Light Shining Out of Darkness. There's a footnote to one of the lines which reads, Blind unbelief is sure to err, to be mistaken. And the reference at the foot of the page is to John chapter 13, verse 7. The words of Jesus to Simon Peter as he stoops to wash his feet. He says to Peter, what I am doing, you do not understand now. But afterwards, you will understand. So the Lord said to Peter. So the Lord said to Naomi, so the Lord says to each one of us. So let's stand and sing this.